This is Financial Standard, the definitive source of news, thought leadership and analysis for Australian wealth management professionals. Financial Standard. Take the lead. Hello, I'm Chloe Walker and welcome to the Financial Standard podcast. Today, I'm joined by Alex Dunnan, Director of Research at Rainmaker Information, to unpack the government's intergenerational report. As I'm sure most are aware, the report provides a snapshot of Australia in which some of us and future generations will find themselves in 40 years' time, should government policy settings remain unchanged. There's a lot to talk about in a short amount of time, so we'll dive right in. Welcome to you, Alex. Howdy. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Uh, So, Alex, what were the key findings of this year's intergenerational report? Fantastic question. Before I start on that, I've got to say that um, last night doing homework for this podcast, I watched Dr. Jim Chalmers, the treasurer from Queensland, your home state, Chloe, (laughs) uh, giving his speech to the press club a couple of weeks when he launched the IGR. Uh, So real people don't call this intergenerational report, call it the IGR. Oh, okay. It was an amazing (laughs) speech. I don't know who his speechwriters are, but they are fantastic. And I would really encourage anyone to dig out that on on the YouTube, as us older folks say. Dig it out, watch it. Uh, It was such a well-delivered speech, jam-packed with information, but the craftsmanship in, in how the speech was delivered was really a sight to behold, and it just gave so much context. Uh, to what the these reports are actually trying to do. Now, to kind of answer your question, what is the IGR telling us might happen to Australia in years to come? Mm-hmm. Well, the quick grab is bigger, older, hotter, richer, more diverse, less productive, and unless we rebalance the tax system, we're going to be in so much debt, we're going to go broke. Let's work through some of these things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, population. Right now, Australia has a population of 26 million people, which we might think is a lot, but actually we're a tiny country compared to a lot of our neighbours. In 20 years' time, we'll jump up to 35 million, and then 40 years' time by 2063, and I'll be long gone by then, 41 million. That means that our population over the IGR's projection period is going to be 60% more than we have now. That's 375,000 people joining Australia one way or the other every year. That's like a new Canberra coming into Australia year in, year out. And somehow we're going to have to try and squeeze a new Canberra into the suburbs of Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, because let's be blunt, most people live in our major capital cities. Or we're going to have to start thinking about encouraging people to live in the regions, move to the minor states, or actually build new cities from scratch. And we know how hard that is in this country. Continuing the theme of population, fertility is really low in Australia. Uh, I'm a parent of one child. Um, most people in Australia, most families have on average, um, less than two kids. So we're not, we don't have, uh, our natural, uh, population growth due to births, less deaths is pretty low. So therefore we need lots of migration to grow our population. So if we're forecasting that Australia is going to be a really rapidly growing country by number of people, then we need lots and lots of migrants. Now, almost every other developed country on the planet has the same idea, which means there's going to be a war between us and all of our other frenemy countries to attract migrants. So we're going to have to get rid of the racism out of our visa and migration system. So it's no coincidence that the government right now has a review pending on that very system. Uh, we're going to become much more multicultural, which I absolutely love. I love the globalization of the nation. I love how the transformation that's happened over the past few decades. I love traveling to 
around the Asia region, the Middle East. That's Australia's backyard. I just love that. My, my family, and we're really international, we just love that. But there's a lot of people in Australia who are unsure about that. But this country is going to be changing dramatically just in terms of the, top, the people, number of people, types of people, and their cultural background. So we're going to start to hear a lot more languages being spoken on the street, which is a tremendous thing. We're going to be much older. Right now, the median age in Australia is 38. I'm 61, so I'm way above average there. <laughs> By 2063, the median age is going to jump up from 38 to 43. Now, that reflects the general ageing in the population. Right now, 17% of us are above 65. Say they're, they've retired. That's about the retirement age band. By 2063, that 17% ratio is going to jump to 23%. Now, if you actually look at the hard absolute numbers, right now there are 4.4 million people who are over 65. It's going to more than double to 9.4. You don't need to be Einstein to realise that's going to have big implications for not worrying too much about age pension payments, but health payments in particular. In fact, I'm talking about that point. Right now, we spend 8.5% of GDP on aged care, the NDIS, aged pensions, the health system. It's, put, it's projected that will increase by about half to 12.5%. And that's not a bad thing, but it's just a fundamental working out of the people. As we say, demographics is destiny and it's going to drive budgets. We're going to be much hotter. It's forecast in the IGR that over the projection period of 40 years, Australia on average will become 1.7 degrees hotter than it is now. That's going to have profound implications for weather intensity, fires, and therefore insurance costs. One of the backstories, economic backstories we don't talk too much about, at least in the popular media yet, is what's happening with insurance costs around the country. The number of homes that are going to be uninsurable. In fact, there are states that will be uninsurable. And if you're watching what's happening with the bushfires that have been around California, I understand. Mm. The view is that Californian housing is almost uninsurable right now. Now, we're not saying that's going to happen in Australia, but something's going to have to give. This is going to have big implications for town planning, the amount of money we spend on air conditioning, hopefully through solar electricity, and hopefully we'll get rid of all those dark roofs on those new developments. Now, in terms of our budget, if we're going to be spending so much more on, on healthcare, pensions, NDIS, et cetera, et cetera, someone's got to pay for that. And if we're going to have an older population, we therefore have fewer, as a proportion, younger people. Younger people pay most of the taxes. So yet again, we're going to screw the younger generation. Why they continue to vote for those policies, I have no idea, though I think the last election perhaps signified a bit of a turnaround. Um, but there's going to be some profound resetting. But also what's kind of interesting too is that over the last 40 years, Real GDP growth was 3% per annum. The IGR is projecting that over the next 40 years, it's only going to be 2% per annum, which means it's going to drop by a third. If economic growth is going to drop by a third, that's got big implications for just the amount of money available in this country to pay for services. But it's also then interesting to try and bring some of this together. Right now, the Australian economy is ranked about 13th, 12th, 13th, 14th, depending on which list you look at. But we're just outside the big dozen. Uh, so we're a leading country. And what is really interesting, even though some of our neighbours are going to become very big, so the leading four countries by 2060 are forecast to be China, India, the United States, and Indonesia. Now, India and Indonesia, are, and also China, are very close neighbours. So Australia is going to be surrounded by these amazing population centres. So the economic opportunities for us are just going to be untold. However, we're going to be a tiny, tiny, tiny country. Our entire country will be less than some of the cities in those nations. But 
Interestingly enough, because of all the economic activity being created and, and constantly generated in the food bowl mining quarry that Australia is, I was expecting that uh, our global ranking might actually plummet down the league tables. But actually, a lot of analysts are thinking we might surprisingly hold our, hold our relative rank. Now, our absolute wealth will not diminish, but we won't be growing as fast as some of our near neighbours. But it's still expected that we'll be probably the 12th, 14th or 15th largest economy in the world in, 60, in 40 years' time, which is a pretty phenomenal achievement. So bring it all together. Bigger, older, hotter, richer more diverse, uh, but with some real uh, economic challenges in terms of productivity. So I think it's really exciting. I'm really glad to be alive. I think Australia's got an, an amazing set of opportunities that other countries, would, to be quite blunt, would die for. But we do have to manage the future. And a big part of what these reports are about is to try and not talk about hard forecasts that this is actually what is going to happen no matter what. But this is how the current numbers seem to be playing out. And it gives us a good idea about if these assess guardrails so we can start thinking strategically, start to make some management decisions and start to decide what sort of future we want because the future that's going to, we're going to be living in is going to be the one that we create and we start creating that right now. Okay. Wow. Thank you very much for that. That was extremely insightful. <laughs> um, of course, the very first intergenerational report was done back in 2002. Um, and at that stage, the government predicted that there would be a huge problem with their aged pension because according to them, it was going to cost 4.6% of GDP by the year 2042. Interestingly, actually today, it's about half that at 2.5% of GDP. Um, however, Alex, you've suggested that the fiscal policy implications for the age pension costs and also the superannuation policy will be massive. Why is this the case? Are, are we not tracking well? Let's sort of backtrack on some of this stuff. I mean, lots of ways, they're, they're the real, some of the really key aspects in the IGR, particularly as they might impact the, uh, the wealth man management financial sector. Australian, Australia currently spends only 2.5% of GDP on age pensions. Now, that's a lot of money until you start to think about what's happening amongst some of our European friends in the OECD, where it's many countries spend more than 10% of their GDP on their age pensions. In fact, France spends about 14%, and they've recently had a series of riots about the government just trying to marginally increase the age pension age, protests over issues in Australia we would consider so trivial that it's, it's almost quite laughable. The IGR is projecting that over the next 40 years, that 2.5% GDP ratio, which is already massively efficient and the envy of um, uh, economies around the planet, is actually projected to drop down to decrease by about a fifth, drop down to 2%. And other countries must be scratching their head thinking, oh my God, how are, how are you people in Australia doing this? Well, it's quite simple, superannuation. Now, there are still folks out there, and I find this extraordinary, there are still folks that out there who really criticise Australia's superannuation system. But it's probably one been one of the most profound economic reforms in this nation's history and will probably go down as one of the most profound reforms in Australia's history ever. So when we're sitting around in five billion times being melted by the supernova sun, Australia's superannuation system will still be being talked about. It's just been absolutely amazing. But it does beg the question about its equity, is it sustainable in its current structure and all those kinds of issues. Now, in years and years and years to come, we will still have the age pension, but it's going to be damn hard to qualify for it. Right now, only 60% of people over the age of 65 get the age pension, and two-thirds of them get the full pension, meaning a third get the part pension. So we have a lot more self-funded retirees than we might realise. 
So already we've got only 60% of people getting the age pension. In years to come, when superannuation really comes into its own and really starts building up, you're going to have a lot less people needing the pension. So Chloe, you're a little bit younger than me by a few decades. Yeah. You're probably going to retire with two or three million dollars in super. You will be laughing. And that's a fantastic outcome for you. Now, right where this kind of becomes really fascinating is right now the average retiree retires with, at you know, age 65, $235,000, which is really not a lot in the grand scheme of things. Only 3% of people retire with more than a million dollars. So let's get rid of this stupid idea that you need a million dollars to retire. And let's stop talking about people with multi-million dollar superannuation balances as if, as if they're regular people. They are not. They are the extreme wealthy and we should celebrate them but they are not typical Australians. By 2040, it's probably not too far of a stretch to say most people will have an average super balance of a million dollars. And in fact, the other day, the patron saint of superannuation in Australia, Paul Keating, and Chloe, you may not remember much about Paul Keating, but it's a pretty amazing prime minister with massive, massive impact. <laughs> He's getting a bit older now and becoming a bit more politically exciting from if you've, if you've been watching any of his AUKUS speeches. I have. But that aside, he was actually making comments at some, I think, at the Labor Party conference a couple of weeks back, saying that young people should aspire to have 2 to $3 million in superannuation by the time they retire. They are just not going to need any support from a public age pension system. In fact, with that amount of money, they'll be able to pay off huge mortgages without even thinking, which probably then begs the question, should we be allowing people to actually borrow from their future selves, their future superannuation balances to buy a home? It's not too different to what happens in the Singapore Providence system. And I know people don't like talking about housing and super, but if we're going to have so much money in super, it might be worth thinking about. But a successful superannuation is we do spend a lot of money on its tax subsidies and the tax subsidies in super are one of the most expensive parts of the government budget and is actually one of the fastest growing parts of the government budget. And by its nature, those tax subsidies go to people who already have a lot of money. And let's remind ourselves that last year, according to APRA figures, 17% of wages and salaries earned by everybody in this country went into their superannuation. And in fact, if it wasn't for the Turnbull government in, in 2016, 2017, bringing in the transfer balance cap to actually try and take off some of the tax subsidies from the more wealthy people, we'd have 25% of our wages and salaries going into super. So if anything, superannuation is getting too big. And if it gets too big, it becomes too big to fail. It becomes too hard to control. It almost becomes Australia's version of the tech sector. So let's forget about you know, people who start complaining about this so-called $3 million tax cap and how that's fundamentally inequitable, let's forget about that. They're total rubbish arguments because so few people are impacted. But all this said, superannuation has grown, so, become so successful, it's become bigger than anyone ever dreamed. And so by the time this IGR projection period of, say, three to four decades passes, the superannuation savings pool will actually be many times bigger than GDP. It's going to tr that amount of money is going to transform Australia's capital markets. It's, going to, it's probably going to start to trans and transform and have impacts into capital markets around the world with which we operate every day. Super funds will probably end up owning almost everything in the country. I know that might be a cliche, but they're going to become such massive, massive owners of capital. And so the 10 super funds that will probably still be around in those, in those times, let's face it, but given what's consolidation that's been happening, that's probably not too much of a far-fetched forecast. Those 10 leading funds will just be so economically dominate, 
dominant, it's probably going to be pretty scary. And then you start thinking about most of those leading funds are not-for-profit funds. Already the biggest 10 funds own 75% of the superannuation assets. The biggest 20 own 95%. They're going to have massive, massive, massive financial consolidation in Australia's funds management and pension fund system. But that's kind of a mark of how successful this, this superannuation system has been. The long story short, our age pension system is economically incredibly efficient. It's the envy of the world. Uh, the fact that it's going down as a share of GDP, even though people are getting much older, just shows you how unbelievably and amazingly successful superannuation has been. In fact, the people who actually developed in Australia probably should get the Nobel Peace Prize, I would suggest. Oh, I've got a whole bunch of questions, but for the sake of time, I'll ask you one more. So off the back of the report, what do you anticipate will be included in the consultation and what do you think some of the outcomes will be? Already, retirees in Australia own 40% of all superannuation money in Australia. That includes all sectors of the, of, of the system, including self-managed super. By 2040, I don't think you need to be a, a, a clairvoyant to figure out and speculate that that ratio of 40% will probably almost double to, say, 70%. Combined with the number of retirees doubling, recall those population figures we started with, going from 4.4 million up to 9.4 million, this means funds are really going to speed up and develop the sorts of products and services that they provide to older members. Now, the rapid growth in those numbers means that every year we have 125,000 more retirees in Australia. So you've got people coming in and people falling off the end, and I'm going to be one of them in a couple of years' time. <laughs> uh, we'll see how the summer goes. I'm in my local fire brigade, and I don't intend burning to death, but I, uh, let's see if I make not. it. Now... There have been people in the market who think we need a lot more retirement income stream products being sold. We need to make annuities, if not more popular, compulsory, whatever. Well, you know, on one hand, that makes a lot of sense. But we also need to realise that those sorts of products, annuities in particular, are incredibly unpopular. Australians just do not like them. And that's not because Australians are silly. So don't start talking to me about how we need to increase financial literacy, because uh, most people who talk about financial literacy don't actually know what the words mean. But the people who have been trying to promote annuities, they've done such a bad job at it. So the government is really trying to encourage super funds to become much more focused and friendly towards retirees. And it makes absolutely perfect sense. They've just got to do that. Super funds will have to start developing income stream products. They'll have to start figuring out how to deliver advice. They'll have to, have to start explaining. And all of us, as you know, Rainmaker included, will have to be able to start helping people understand their retirement options just as smoothly and simply as they understand the accumulation side of superannuation. Uh, so, there's going, so funnily enough, the superannuation sector in Australia is going to go through its most exciting wave of innovation ever. And it's going to be driven by old people. Who would have thought? A couple of years back, we thought all these funky new disruptive products were hip and groovy and cool, to use 60s and 70s terms there, showing my age, uh, because they had an app. Well, it's, there's so much more to running a super fund than having a funky app. Most of those products fail for a reason. It's going to be retirees who are going to drive the innovation wave. So therefore, any review was going to start thinking about these kinds of services facilitating this sort of transformation amongst super funds. I think it's a stretch to say we're going to make retirement income products compulsory because we don't really like doing that in Australia. But I would also say there's going to be a few wild cards here. So Annuity providers have pretty much failed to make their products appealing to the, pub, to the public at large. But super funds, and when they talk to the, their members, are finding out that members love the, what annuities deliver, 
the terms just terrify them. So I'll, I'll be expecting that we'll be having a good hard look at whether super funds themselves can start to create kind of consortia that we might have to start thinking about the regulatory structures for to allow the super funds themselves to start offering some of these retirement income products because there's such a desperate need for it. There'll be real appetite, but the way we talk about these products needs to be reimagined. So I, I, I don't think you need to be too profound to think that the kinds of things that are going to be part of this review is going to be everything that we've just talked about. Income streaming of products, we've got to really simplify the conversations. We've really got to make it so much easier to understand. If, you, if everyone who retires... If the view is you need to go and sit down with a human financial plan or across the desk, that means we built a system so complicated that we need personal intervention for everybody. And given the number of planners out there, and it's not about to recover anytime soon, and even if it does recover, it won't recover by enough to, to support all the people retiring, we've got to reimagine how we deliver financial advice. So thank God for AI. AI is going to go through financial services like a hot knife through butter one of the really powerful points will be we might actually finally have a way to deliver on more financial advice to more people. Still a massive role for the humans, but it's going to be a different role. And while all this is going on, super funds are also, they're already ramping up their advice services. That's a great thing. Alex, um, I always love picking your brain. <laughs> Thank you so much for providing your insights. I've learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have as well. I wish that we had more time to chat, but hopefully we can talk again soon. Thank you so much for coming on board the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to this Financial Standard podcast. For more information, visit financialstandard.com.au. Please keep in mind that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider personal circumstances. Reliance should not be placed on any content without further independent financial research and advice.